Gentlemen here, and today we are talking about the good, the bad, and the ugly, the pros and cons of oat milk. There are some things in this that are going to touch on the HTML webinar that I did with Clark Engelbert, the link for which is in my link tree, which should be in the description below. Of course, we are having issues streaming to Facebook because Facebook is stupid. So I have to want to go try and fix that, but I also don't want to waste your guys' time, so I'm just going to ignore it. Okay, anyway, today we're talking about oat milk and the pros and cons of it. People are talking a lot of trash about the humble, incredible edible oat, one of my favorite foods. So today we're going to talk trash about the trash talkers, and we're going to talk about how amazing oats are and why this topic is a little bit confusing and how picking the wrong oats and oat products could make or break your health. All right. So without further ado, let's dive right in. Okay. First paper right out of the gate, oat intake and risk of type two diabetes. One of the first things people will say about oats is they're like, Oh no, the carbs, right? But carbs are not bad. How they're packaged, how they're processed, what they go along with. That's what makes carbs bad. Okay. I give people carbs all day long. They do terrific. Many of them have problems with carbohydrates that are linked to elements and trace minerals and toxic metals, which we'll talk about more later. And that's why they have problems with carbs, okay, among others. But the bottom line here is that there's not a lot of data implicating oats in the rise of modern serious diseases. And this is just one paper of an infinite number I could have drawn upon where they show that oat intake does not correlate with this. Consumption of oats could reduce the risk for type 2 diabetes and all-cause mortality while no significant association was, was found for cardiovascular disease. I love talking about all-cause mortality. We're going to talk about it a little bit later, too, because there's even more data on this that I think explains what's really going on here. I became a huge fan of oats a long time ago. My father is a case study in this. He's 84 years old. He doesn't eat organic food. He doesn't do all these complicated, sophisticated biohacks or supplement protocols or whatever. I've paid very close attention to what my father does do. And one of the things he does every single day is he has a bowl of oats. He either has oatmeal in the summer or he has oats and, and oat um, granola in the summer. And then he has oatmeal in the winter. And he, it's not even organic. Okay. And that was one of the things that I looked at and I thought, you know, if they're really so bad, how on earth is he alive? And he's 84. He's doing great. Okay. Let's go back to one of my favorite people to, to, draw from in the nutrition world, Weston A. Price. Weston A. Price Foundation, of course, I'm a big fan. They had me speak at their event last year. I encourage you to go support them, listen to their podcast. I've been on twice. They have this great article about the Good Scots Diet. So the Scottish people are have long been known to be some of the toughest people in the world. Ask anyone, this reputation is not disputed. This is a great article that highlights the traditional Scottish diet. Oats are the chief cereal grain. Root vegetables like turnips, potato, leeks, cabbage and kale for brassicas, lots of wild vegetables, uh, dairy products, fish, shell, fish, and seaweed. Okay. Some meat and game, wild berries in the summer. All right. This is a very similar to the diet I recommend to my patients for the record. And I'm going to show you exactly what that looks like in a minute. All right. The idea that oats are bad for people, I think is nuts. When you look at the example of the Scottish for the Scots, oats are used all the time. I mean, they eat it all the time. And so if it's so bad for people, how on earth can anyone believe that it would be, um, uh, how, how can the Scots be where they are and how can they have the reputation that they have? So let's look at some common oat products. Cause this is where I think it begins to become 
apparent. Jim asks, what about the problem with glyphosate and its overuse in the drawing out of oats in the U.S. right before harvesting? Jim, you are entirely correct. We're going to talk about glyphosate in a minute here. Okay, so this is the handy-dandy app chronometer, which I use almost all the time, it feels like, in order to explain to people what they're actually eating. I'm going to blow this up so it's a little bit more visible on this screen. All right, so first of all, let's look at regular oats. Loaded with carbs, not a ton of protein, but actually more protein than a lot of grains at 12%, which means that if you eat a significant amount of oats, they will make a contribution to your overall protein intake. Let's look at oat milk, same macros. That means it's the same food. It's just been diluted with water. And this is how I make oats. Are you guys ready? Or oat milk? Are you ready? This is really complicated. So sharpen your pencils. I take a quarter cup of oats. I put it in eight ounces of water. I put it in a blender bottle and I blend it and that's it. That's the whole recipe. It's when people make these things complicated that they run into trouble. Now we look at the uh, mainstream oat milks, okay? This one is nondescript. It's not a brand. This one is a brand. You'll notice these have the exact same macros. And you'll notice that an enormous amount of fat has crept into the product. Where did this fat come from? It's the same amount of calories as this regular oat milk up here, which is truly just oats and water because it's got the exact same macros as oats, okay? But all of a sudden, there's all this fat. Where did the fat come from, and what is it bringing with it, okay? You will notice there's not a lot of data down here on all these other things. This is one of the reasons why I actually love oats. To go back to the regular oats, let's talk about their micronutrient profile. So oats are loaded with minerals, loaded with minerals. They have a significant amount of copper, iron, mangane magnesium, manganese. They even have a pretty decent amount of potassium, particularly for a, a cereal. They have some selenium, which is unusual for a cereal grain. And they even have some zinc. That's weird. I'm telling you, as somebody who looks at these numbers all day, that's weird. Most cereal grains do not stack up favorably against oats. And that, I believe, is the secret behind their success and the health of the Scots, as one example. Magnesium is a great, it is really one of the keys here, okay? 111 milligrams of magnesium in one serving of oats. It is very hard to find another food that packs as much of a punch as oats do when it comes to magnesium. And what are most of the people seeking my help supplementing with already? Magnesium. And what are many of them not getting a, a even half decent load of in their diet? Magnesium. So they're taking supplements and they're not eating magnesium-rich foods. And often they're not doing that because they heard that oats were bad for them. And so they stopped eating them. I don't think it's the oats. I think it's the stuff that comes along with it or the way it's been processed. So what's one of the things that ends up getting added to many commercial oat milks in order to create that fat profile? And to be really clear, why are they adding fat to oats or oat milk? Because of what we call mouthfeel. So you have an association in your brain that milk is supposed to be fatty. Oats are not fatty. They're rich in carbohydrates and fiber and minerals, et cetera. But in order to mimic the flavor and the mouthfeel of milk, what food processors have done is they've added different types of oils to their oat milk. One of the things you'll see is lower rusic acid rapeseed oil. No, I didn't say that wrong. Yes, that's the name of the actual oil, rapeseed. I don't know who. They named it after the brassicas, and it doesn't translate well into modern English. It's a little bit of an awkward word. This is better known commercially as canola oil. Canola oil 
was created by uh, Canadian vegetable breeders as a cash crop for Canada. And they bred the erucic acid out of rapeseed oil because it became clear that erucic acid was not a culinary oil that it would be good to get too much of. So here's the history of rapeseed oil, which if you've never read about it is a little bit interesting. It's, I think it's a great example of a terrible misadventure in food chemistry. Personally, I do not, or I rather I avoid things that have canola or, or rapeseed oil in them because I'm very suspicious of the process by which they are extracted. And that's my opinion. It's based on my experience taking care of patients. And it goes back to what I was saying about the problems with processed food, some of which I think are how these, these oils are, uh, are produced. Okay. So canola oil and any kind of rapeseed oil that's being sold as a culinary uh, product or a food additive, which is what we're seeing in this case, uh, it should have a low erucic acid level, which is important because that was the main problem with um, canola oil in the early days and why they really created uh, canola oil. Um, most of these, these crops are heavily uh, genetically modified. Uh, because of that, they are heavily contaminated with things like glyphosate. And this is where some of the problems begin, right? So Roundup for Breakfast, part two, Environmental Working Group, one of my favorite nonprofits, uh, they have found uh, glyphosate in all kids' cereals sampled. I do not trust glyphosate. I am sure that it is really bad for people. I do not think anyone should consume any of it, uh, but I'm not in charge, which is why it is still legal. So you'll see here, if you want, want to read the article, there's there's glyphosate found in all these different products, um, and that's why I don't eat those products. And I only buy organic, non-GMO oats, Okay. So as I was saying, erucic acid is a big problem in, in, uh, in rapeseed oil, which is why they breed low erucic acid varietals. And you'll see that they say, if they add it to something, they say low erucic acid rapeseed oil, okay? They're using it because it's cheap. They're using it because it's available. And they're using it because it makes things taste better when you add it to them, which is something you've got to be aware of, all right? What happens when you have high erucic acid rapeseed oil or canola oil? you will get a decrease in the rate of ATP synthesis in isolated rat heart mitochondria. And that is why we don't use it. All right. Another problem I have with um, industrially processed oils, and I don't, I'm not going to be the first person probably to tell you that I think, or that industrially processed oils have a lot of problems with them. I try to avoid them at all costs. The only type of oil you'll catch me cooking with is olive oil. I will cook with lard. I'll cook with tallow. I'll cook with a variety of different, you know, uh, 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 animal uh, fats like ghee or butter. I stopped cooking with vegetable and nut oils a long time ago because there are so many problems with how they're produced, and there are serious, serious problems with their shelf stability. So when you look at these problems, part of the benefit of nuts and seeds in your diet, and for the record. Nuts and seeds and their intake are associated with lower all-cause mortality. I defy you to find me a study where they gave people more nuts and seeds who weren't eating them, and it increased their risk of death. I've looked. I haven't been able to find these studies. Over and over again, you see the traditional cultures eat nuts and seeds, and they're staples in their diets, and it's largely because they're so nutrient-dense. Do modern people often have problems with these foods? Yes. Again, I believe this is because they're overbred. They're overtreated with things like pesticides and herbicides. And then the products of these foods are hopelessly tortured and, and, and processed so that they don't even look like the things our ancestors used to eat. Wheat is a great example of this where 
you know, the, the ancestral wheat that we, you know, people grew up on for generations in the West looks nothing like industrial produced wheat today. The story of that is in Wheat Belly. Uh, the name of the author of that escapes me, but it's a great read and very thought provoking. So the PEO solution is a book that really changed my thinking about lipid biochemistry and how we should approach culinary oils and fats. In this book, Brian Peskin does a great job of undressing the industrial seed oil industry and why there's so much confusion about are seed oils good for you? Are they bad for you? How much should you eat? What kind should you eat? For the record, I eat two to three servings of about an ounce of nuts and seeds every single day. I had chia seeds this morning. I had a tablespoon in my smoothie. For lunch, I think we added something like walnuts or cashews to a simple soup or stew. Tonight, I'll add pumpkin seeds or pine nuts or something like that to uh, my dinner. What happens when you break up a nut or a seed is that you introduce oxygen where it shouldn't be. And to, uh, to go back quickly to the rapeseed oil or rapeseed, you'll notice when you look at the breakdown of its fatty acid composition that it's got a huge quantity of polyunsaturated fatty acids, 8 grams of omega-3s and 20 grams of omega-6s. Uh, per 100 grams. That's a massive quantity of omega-3s and omega-6s. Now, omega-3s are famous basically with everyone for being good for you because they have they've been shown to be so beneficial when you increase the intake of them. However, I would note that the studies on fish oil are mixed at best. And this ties back in to Brian Peskin's work in the PEO solution. I would point out to people who want to consume just a isolated omega-3 product that ultimately the benefit of eating fish and eating nuts and seeds that are high in omega-3s and therefore having a high omega-3 diet is arguably more related to the load of minerals and vitamins that you get with those foods, which is why I'm very careful to eat a lot of those foods in my diet. As I was saying, when you introduce oxygen into a nut or a seed, it doesn't matter if it's a rape seed or it's a, it's a, it's a sunflower seed or a pumpkin seed or whatever, the oxygen will start to oxidize the omega-3s and the omega-6s. This doesn't just make them uh, less available and less capable of doing their job within your body. It actually turns them into a metabolic liability. Oxidized fats are a problem in nature. It's one of the reasons why lipid peroxides are such a great marker for oxidative stress. And if you look at lipid peroxidation as a process, it is elevated in almost every single disease state that you could care about. And that's why I don't grind or mill my nuts or seeds. If anything, I will blend them the day that I use them or chop them the day that I use them because I want to minimize their exposure to oxygen. I will even go so far as to take the nuts and seeds I buy out of bags and put them in and, and vacuum seal them with oxygen absorbers. And um, what do you call them? These little packets that absorb water so that I can then freeze them and keep them as fresh as possible. Okay. So the minute you grind it up and don't just grind it up, but you then, you know, press it, you're creating the opportunity for all these things to oxidize, which makes them, as I was saying, metabolic liabilities. Okay. So PEO solution, great book, really helpful in understanding lipid biochemistry. He also has a great breakdown in this book of the incredibly bizarre process by which uh, seed oils are produced. It's dizzying the number of steps that these products go through before they're ready for consumption. I hesitate to say, say consumption in a way that makes you want to eat them. Okay. What are some of the things that are done? So hexane is actually used in seed oil extraction. 
And this is a really funny article to me anyway, from Pure Chemicals Group. And I'm just to be really clear, these are just my opinions, right? Um, but they say there's nothing to worry about. Food grade hexane is universally permitted for extracting oil from seeds and is safe for consumption within the prescribed permissible limits. Hexane is a, uh, a solvent that in excess is definitely a toxin. Um, you will notice, however, if you look at examples like the Scots, um, why are they healthy? They're healthy because they don't eat any processed food. So I'm very suspicious of introducing solvents like hexane into the food refining process. And this is another reason why I don't eat processed food. I don't, I'm not confident that food is really safe when it's been processed in this way. Here's another thing for you to think about. Nickel and alumina catalysts for the transformation of vegetable oils into green diesel. This is an example of green diesel, which is obviously not germane to the food industry. But if you look in this area of the literature, you'll see that there's tons and tons of metal catalysts that are being used to transform oils from their native, natural, original state into something else in the food industry, typically in hydrogenation. Nickel is, is often, if not always, used in the hydrogenation process. Okay, Hydrogenated oils have a long history and a significant literature behind them as being problematic for human health and well-being, and it's, again, why I avoid them, all right? So nickel toxicity is really interesting. I mentioned it in the last article. Nickel toxicity or nickel is used in order to produce um, hydrogenated oils and refine certain oils. Heavy metals like nickel can produce free radicals from diatomic molecule through the double-step process and generate superoxide anion. These superoxide anions come together with protons and facilitate dismutation to form hydro hydrogen peroxide, which is the important reason behind the nickel-induced pathophysiological changes in living systems. So nickel over time can accumulate in your body. And yes, the most metabolically broken people I see in my practice do happen to tend to have higher levels of nickel on their hair tissue mineral analysis testing. And yes, the minerals that nickel competes with also tend to be lower in those people like chromium and selenium, which are both essential for normal health and metabolism. And did you know or remember that I mentioned at the beginning, oats have a high concentration of selenium relative to many other foods. Isn't that interesting? And again, I want to just drive this point home. There's a serious association between ultra-processed ultra food and all-cause mortality. Com compared with low consumption, highest consumption of ultra-processed food, blah, 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 significantly associated with increased risk of mortality. In this particular study, they don't find that breakfast cereals were associated. Um, they found that breakfast cereals were associated with a lower mortality risk. I would wonder maybe if you did a further analysis, if this was due to their inclusion of oats as one of the cereals. Isn't that an interesting thought? I think so. Let's go back for a minute to the data on oats. This is just four oat products compared oat milk, regular oats, and then two different types of oat milk. Let's go to this day. This is the Scott's diet that I kind of made up based on uh, this article from the Weston A. Price Foundation. So you'll see I added turnip greens, turnips, potatoes, leeks, kale, cheddar cheese, whole milk, um, cod liver oil, cod, oysters, herring, eggs, seaweed, specifically dulse, and then, of course, oats. Let's look at how this diet stacks up. It's about 2,000 calories. About 30% of the calories are coming from protein, 44% from carbs, 30% from fat. I created it this way because if you look at the traditional uh, uh, lifestyle of the Scottish people, these people are doing a lot of manual labor. Everyone out there in, in history who's doing a lot of manual labor, they tend to rely a lot on carbohydrates of some form or another, whether it's fruits 
or grains or root vegetables or whatever. So it's a relatively high protein diet, certainly compared to most Americans. This for the record is two or three times what a lot of you listening to this at home are actually getting on a day-to-day -day basis. It's 150 grams of protein and it could have been more than that. This diet is loaded with micronutrients, loaded with B vitamins. Look at how much folate is in this diet, almost 800 micrograms. And a lot of it is coming in from seaweed, which most people forget to eat because it's no longer a common food or a staple in people's diets. And that's one reason why I love to get people eating it. It is so good for them. There's a huge amount of calcium in here coming in mainly from the milk, but also from the greens. There's lots of copper. There's lots of uh, magnesium, but you'll notice by the way, with the magnesium that other than the potatoes, the oats are the heaviest hitter for magnesium on this entire list. They put everything else to shame. 25% of the whole of the daily intake of magnesium on this diet comes from the oats. I think that's amazing. Okay. It outclasses the, the kale. It outclasses the leeks. It outclasses a lot of other things on this, on this list by a long shot too. Uh, let's go to the selenium too. And yeah, again, the oats are stacking up in the top four. But this comes back to my point about uh, seafood. I think that people really underestimate the importance of seafood in their diets. And yes, some of our seafood today is contaminated with heavy metals. It's contaminated with other toxins. You know, I think about this all the time because I love my oysters and I really would like to eat them on a regular basis. Uh, I see people chronically low in selenium. It's one reason why I like to eat Brazil nuts. Don't take too many. I also don't recommend empiric selenium supplements because I've seen people overdose on those and I don't want people running into trouble with that. Anyway, enough about that. Another thing worth noting on this diet is look at the huge intake of omega-3s at 7.3 grams total for the day. That's because of the herring, the fish oil, the oysters, and the cod, okay? And then the low intake of omega-6s, which to be fair, I don't think are necessarily appropriately uh, are bad for people. I mean, I eat, like I said, two to three servings of nuts and seeds each day, which have loads of omega-6s in them. And I'm okay with that. And I've done my labs and no, I don't have excessive levels. To go back to the breakdown of rapeseed oil, you know, when you look at this, it's basically 20 grams of omega-6s for every 100 grams of oil. Well, that means that one gram, uh, one in every five grams of this oil is an omega-6. You can get to a high intake of omega-6s in a day with things like canola oil without realizing it. And that's part of the danger behind, I believe, these oils. They're driving people into these high, high, high levels of consumption, as well as having these problematic contaminations from things like glyphosate and heavy metals. So I love oat milk. I make it. I drink it. I avoid the stuff that's got food additives in it because I'm very suspicious of it. And because, as I always like to mention to people, the real problem with processed food is the whole processing process, not just one ingredient. So oats are not being appropriately or fairly treated, I think, in the health and wellness info space. There is definitely room in your diet for oats. I've had some amazing cases that did super well with oats, and I keep eating them, and I'm going to keep eating them, and I am doing just great. Thank you for asking. As always, everyone, thank you for watching. This is a Monday Masterclass with Dr. Stillman. I will be having a Q&A with my Substack Premium subscribers after this. That's every week for the Substack Premium subscribers at 3.30 p.m. If you'd like to ask me questions and get some FaceTime with me, you should upgrade your Substack subscription. And if you're not on my Substack mailing list, make sure you go to stillmanmd.substack.com and sign up. Take care, everyone. Don't forget to subscribe. Thanks, everyone. Have a great day.